0: Well again, welcome, and it's my great privilege uh, to introduce our speaker for the weekend. Um, Dr. Barry Chant, also a pastor of the CRC, and um, oh, I've probably met this man 20 odd years ago. Um, maybe I, I, I dare say it was either one of your many visits to Griffith or at a conference, um, and I've always um, loved. Just hearing him and just, um, you know, being under his teaching. and and But even more uh, lately, just at times, just sitting and, and speaking um, with Barry and, and just hearing his insights and just his love for God and, and the journey that he's been on and continues. And um, I'm just really grateful that he's made time to come um, this weekend. Um, only just back from Indonesia, was it? Malaysia. And so, you know highly sought after and so um you know we're, we're really blessed to have him here for the weekend and so um you know take advantage of of it uh, you know we don't get uh, a caliber of of um men like pastor barry here with us uh very often um and so yeah just use this opportunity to invite people along and um just get insight into something of god's word that will as james prayed Um, Well, not only for our knowledge, but for our application in life. So, I welcome you, um, Barry, and um, yeah, just come and share what God has placed on your heart. Let's uh, welcome Pastor Barry tonight. Yeah, thanks, Rodney.
1: Thank you all for coming out on a Friday night after what has, I guess, been a busy week. I was... uh, Admire people who make sacrifices like this. Wouldn't it be so easy to sit home on a cold night and put your feet up and take it easy? So, thanks for coming, and I hope that you, by the time the evening is over, you'll be very glad you have. Very pleased that you're here. I bring an apology from my wife, Vanessa, who originally was planning to come as well but was not able to. Uh, but she certainly uh, will be keen to hear about the meetings, and certainly is uh, sorry she couldn't be here. But she has been here before, but there we go. And uh, yes, we have just got back from a very uh, exciting trip in Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, spoke, uh, we were there for over three weekends and four different churches. And uh, those of you who are wondering how you get the four churches for the three weekends, well, it's not too hard if you just add a few, leave that. I <laughs> uh, really enjoyed, uh, Two two of the churches we visited were pastored by, uh, graduates of Tabor College, the students that I've taught in years gone by, and it's very, very exciting to go now and, and see them pastoring successful churches and reaching people for Christ. And, um, that's, uh, I wish just a state of my classes that the one thing, one thing I really hope for is that many of them will do far more than I've ever done. And when I see people, some of them are doing that, I'm thinking, that is so good, because that's what you want. You want to see the work growing, not decreasing. You want to see people expanding and not diminishing you know, what they've received and just on Monday, we had a meeting in Adelaide, in Adelaide that's a throwback, in, in Sydney, of the Sydney CRC pastors. We, we meet every quarter just for lunch and fellowship. And one of the pastors there was reminded me of something I'd said to him in, when he was in Crusade Bible College back in the 1960s. And I thought, wow, he still remembers after all those years. I'm very impressed with that. Um, one of the things that in, in uh, Malaysia and, and uh, Singapore we're very excited the number of books that people bought. We um, sold 1,700 books while we were there. Uh, just People just thronged the book tables and laying, getting hold of whatever they could. We actually would have sold more if we had more but we ran out uh, at the end. So that was very exciting too and we have a few here tonight so if you want to have a look at the book table before you go please do. Uh, everything is reduced in price. Uh, all uh, below the normal retail price you would pay and there are some uh, special deals there that you can, you can get if you wish um, I'll just mention a couple of them uh, there's several books on the work of the Holy Spirit this one's called Empowered by the Spirit which is, um, is the best explanation I could do of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and what it's got a few diagrams what are all the outcomes of that what it, what's, what's its impact is in our lives and that's also an excellent book to have on hand for people, not so much non-church people, but people from churches who have questions about things like speaking in tongues and prophesying and so on. It's a sort of book that will really help them. And another one there called Gifts of the Spirit, another one called Praying in the Spirit. They sort of all go together. And then this one, Living in the Image of God, used to be published under the name Creative Living. And some of you may have seen that in years gone by. This is an expanded and enlarged and revised version, better version than the previous one. And that's um, really kind of a handbook for discipleship, really. Full of uh, lots of interesting anecdotes and stories and testimonies. And that's, again, reduced price. And for, uh, for, for tonight, this one, this is Revival. That's our topic tonight. We'll be talking about that later. Obviously, I can't cover everything that's in here in just a one five-minute, well, ten-minute, um, well, one message anyway. Um, so it's uh, it's illustrated... Or photographic, or photographic session at the beginning of the book. So um, that's one that, uh, what you have here in the table tonight, they're the only ones that I have. So we've, the first edition is sold out except for what we've got here tonight. I think there's about nine or ten books there. So if you want one, now's the time to get it because uh, they won't be available afterwards. Then there's uh, my children's books there. They've been far and away the best sellers of everything I've ever written. So, do uh, have a look at those if you have primary school age kids, or your neighbour has, or you've got cousins, or grandchildren, or whatever, kids in that age group. They're great, great little books with uh, 36 stories all up, all set in the Australian outback. So, they, um, they, they, we've sold over 100,000 of those. They've, they've gone all around the world. Uh, some stories have been translated into uh, Dutch, some translated into Russian. Uh, some being translated into American. They've, they've gone all around the world, those, those stories, and just touched hundreds of thousands of children. So they're worth having a look at as well. And there's a couple of specials there, these little books for upper primary, secondary school age. They're only two dollars each. There's a few of those there too. Now, who would be the strongest young man here this evening? Yeah, probably you, Jamie. Um, now, I want to see if you really are, so I want you to choose a competitor who can struggle with you to see if you are the stronger or not. Please stand up quick, grab somebody. Yeah, yeah. you can grab him if you like. Ruben. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Reuben? Is that you? Yeah. you come on, Reuben, you will do. Yeah. I was about Ruben. No, this Reuben. I'll have this one. Come on, you come. You come. Okay. You two? No, just you two. Okay. Now I've got these are the two books I was talking about, the books for high school age kids, right? Now they're interleaved. So what I want you two to do is to pull them apart by just by tugging. Okay. So grab hold and as hard as you can, just pull them apart. Come on, pull. Come on, pull. Now don't pull the cover off. Just pull it. <laughs> Come on. All right, t- all right. Right. Turn it over. Turn it around. Then that's right. Okay. Okay, right. pull, pull. He's going to let you go any minute. <laughs> I wouldn't do that Reuben, he's going to let go. <laughs> okay, well, actually it can't be done. It can't be done. No, 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 don't do that. No, Reuben, don't do that. <laughs> I've got to put it back together if you do that. Well, of course it can be done page by page, but it can't be done just by pulling. And uh, you know, one of the things that in most local churches causes more hassle than anything else, is disunity. But when we get really close together in fellowship like this, you know, it's very hard to damage a church where people are committed to each other than unity. And uh, when you start peeling off one by one, of course, then the whole thing will come apart. But if, you, if you're like this, you can stand very strong. So that's all, just a little fun exercise to show you something. All right going to talk tonight about this is revival. Jimmy, knocking. here we are. we got that on the screen. Yes, we have. Okay. Um, let me say just by introduction that uh, we clearly live in a generation now where there is a great need for revival. Uh, I can't remember a time in my lifetime, and I've been around a few years, when there's been such a concerted attack on Christian values as there is in, the, in, in Australia today. It's not everywhere, of course, but it is uh, in many countries the very opposite is happening. There's a revival that's happening in many places, but not here. And uh, we have a, a society where there is an unapologetic attack on traditional Christian biblical values. And some of you may not be reading up much on it, but in the newspapers and in the journals and in the editorial comments, and really everywhere you look, uh, they're they are, they are constant. Uh, Facebook, it's everywhere constant attacks on these things, on the things we believe and hold dear. And we desperately need God's spirit to be poured out. One of the the sad things that's happening is that uh, the people, say, in the same-sex marriage debate are really claiming the high ground. They are claiming to be the ones who are loving and who are kind and who are forgiving and who are generous and who are open-hearted and open-minded and claiming the Christians are the ones who are bigoted and narrow-minded and unforgiving and hurtful and cruel and, and um, judgmental. And so it's the, the, uh, the non-Christian world is claiming to be the champions of Christian values. And it's, it's a whole thing that's just, a, uh, that's just one side. Of the whole, that's the demonic side, I guess. But the other side is just how that they've got these little slogans like marriage equality and um, homophobia and things like that, which are just the, and the rainbow thing, which is a straight pinch from the gospel. Uh, that these are these are uh, symbols that they 've brilliantly used to promote their cause and it 's very hard to to fight against that um, Australians generally are fair minded people and they have come to believe that it 's a fair minded thing to change the rules about marriage so um, they don 't any longer treat biblical teaching as authoritative, so they don 't see homosexual practice as sinful, and so it 's become a, a very big issue for us and symbolic of how uh, the whole world in Australia, the whole society, has become a very secular-minded society. Well, not everybody. There's still a lot of people who are uh, very, much, very convinced about traditional values. And it's not just Christians. Muslims don't uh, approve of homosexuality. Jews don't approve of it. And so there's quite a few people in the community and some ethnic societies. Uh, people from Africa generally don't approve. So yeah, there's, it's by no means a done deal. But it does illustrate the fact that there's a great need for us to see, to pray for a visitation from on high, to pray for God's spirit to be poured out among us. And I just highlight that particular issue, but it's coming up in all sorts of other areas as well. And uh, to be honest, in some ways, the church has been too judgmental. In some ways, Christians have been too negative and have been lacking in compassion. And in fact, we probably um, should have um, been uh, less judgmental on people and more judgmental on the sin itself than on the other way around. but It doesn't always work like that. Well, I'm not talking about that tonight. It's not my topic. But I wanted to say that it's an introduction to say that we need to be praying as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And that's what we need. We need the kingdom of God to come in our society. We need the will of God to be done. And that's really, in essence, that's what revival is really. It's God's kingdom coming and God's will being done. That's really what it is. So with that in mind, let's read a passage of scripture here together. And uh, I've got to point this. That's Micah and Caesar. Is that right? Okay. Didn't work. Oh, okay. All right. Why isn't it working? Bottom one. Well, the bottom one does put the light on the ceiling. Okay. okay, well, pardon? Why don't you just do it from back there, Abby? Save me. Okay, it'll be, it's pretty easy to do. You just got to press the button and it should okay. Thank you. All right, there we go. Okay, I'm going to read from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 13. On that day, says the prophet speaking as God, I will set up David's fallen tent and I will repair the holes in it. I will restore its ruined places. I will rebuild them as they were a long time ago. That's really revival. Restoring ruined places, rebuilding ruined things. Um, They will capture the few survivors of Edom and all the other nations that were under my authority, declares the Lord who will do these things. Here's a key verse. The days are going to come, declares the Lord, when the one who plows will catch up to the one who harvests. The one who stomps on grapes will catch up to the one who plants. A new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. We'll come back to that passage in a few minutes, but meanwhile, let's pray together. And I wonder if you would pray this prayer with me, please. Lord, please give us, if you can we pray it together, please? Lord, please give us sharp minds to understand and soft hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at what we prayed there. We prayed for two things, for our minds to be sharp and our hearts to be soft, not the other way around. Didn't pray for soft minds and hard hearts. We prayed for sharp minds and soft hearts. And um, so the sharp minds, to understand, well, um, some people say you shouldn't ask questions. Quite the contrary. Jesus invited us to ask questions. Prophets invited us to ask questions. It's good to do that because we don't learn otherwise. But at the same time, we don't want to be uh, cynical or uh, um, hard-hearted. So we need to have a soft heart. So when we do know what is true, then we have a soft enough heart to believe it. But can we pray that prayer one more time? Lord, please give us sharp minds to understand and soft hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to begin by saying it's important to distinguish between visitation and revival because they're not the same thing. A lot of times when people think about revival they think about what we really should call a visitation. Because, uh, well, what's it? I'll explain that as we go along. Visitation is necessarily short-lived. It's short-lived because you can't keep it going uh, for a long time. It's just, it just it's just, too much to contain. Whereas revival is necessarily ongoing. Uh, churches cannot survive without a 24-7 new life in Christ. So you've got visitation, a kind of a short, intense experience of God and revival, a continual day by day going on. For instance, in the mid-1990s, you can read this story in my book, Empowered by the Spirit, which I showed you before. In the mid-1990s, I was invited to speak to the youth uh, church at Wesley Mission. Now, later on, I became pastor of one of the congregations there for a few years, but this is before that. And they wanted me to do some teaching to these young people on on the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I wanted, they wanted me to do four weeks. Well, I couldn't do four weeks. So I, so I got some students from the college to do three of them, and I did the last one. So the students laid a very good foundation. The last meeting, there were about 80 or 90 teenagers in, in the meeting, Sunday morning, started at 9.30, the same time as the senior church did. Um, and um, we were in an upstairs room, three floors up, uh, just facing Castle Ray Street in the city of Sydney. So I basically gave them my own testimony of how I was filled with the Holy Spirit as a teenager. And then a little bit of teaching Uh, and then we got to the end of the message and I said we're going to pray now for the Holy Spirit to come down upon this group. (coughs) They had some musicians there who were all ready to, with two or three songs to close with and uh, I said I'm going to ask the musicians if we don't have the songs we're just going to go straight to prayer. Now some of you will know that when musicians are all prepared and keyed up to do songs and you ask them not to do them, Uh, that is a big test of their humility and their generosity. But these young people were obliging and they didn't argue and so they came and sat down with everybody else. So I prayed a prayer and uh, said Amen and then there was absolute silence. Nothing happened. And I'm standing there thinking, where's those musicians? We better have them after all because <laughs> it's sort of the tradition. You've got to have a song at the end. Um, so uh, but uh, nothing nothing was happening. Everybody was just quiet. We just sort of, I stood there, they sat there. And I had said to them, "If you have any questions, or you want someone to pray with you, just raise your hand, and we'll come and pray with you." Because there was a couple of students there with me, and the pastor's wife, and some others from the church. So, one by one, people's hands began to grow up, just very, gent- very uh, cautiously and tentatively. These hands started to rise, and so we began to move around and started to pray for these young people. And then things started to happen in quite an extraordinary way. And I don't know if I got this in the right order, but uh, there were uh, three um, young women who, who actually came out the front and asked me to pray with them. They said, we are 17-year-old, we're, we're just about to leave the group, um, but we've got another year to go as, a, as leaders and we know that we need the Holy Spirit because we just haven't got what we need to leave this group and that we want to do it right. So I began to pray with them and uh, I should say this room we were in, by the they had a parquetry floor, no carpet, it was hard parquetry floor. Got to pray with them. Almost straight away, they all kind of just dropped to their knees, just out the front of the of the, of the seats, and they began to pray, and God's Spirit just came down upon them. Some of them cried, and, and then they began to pray and began to speak in tongues, as the Spirit just came upon them. Um, a little a young boy in the front row, about 13, 12, 13, put his hand up and prayed with him, and the Spirit came upon him and began to speak in tongues. And then um, fearful rose or four rows back another young man, and his hand up, we, we went to pray with him, and um, I remember him clearly because he was probably 15, but he was, began to weep like that and his nose was running everywhere and it was all messy and everything. But uh, and he began to cry and God just touched him in a, in a wonderful way. And that young man is now the acting senior pastor of that church. And just, he's grown over the years and God's just uh, just developed him marvellously. I was so proud of him. But so it went on like that. Another group of girls were over in this corner and I don't know how they got there, what they were doing there, but I looked around there sitting on the floor and they're. Um, if ever you've been to a camp where you've seen girls get a bit moved emotionally, they were doing all the same things, you know. They'd laugh, then they'd cry, then they'd hug each other, then they'd laugh again, they'd cry again, hug each other again. And, and then began to speak in tongues and they'd cry some more and then they'd hug some more. They were doing that, for which went on for a long time. Um, and uh, another boy at the back, um, his, um, his father was actually uh, one of the leaders of the group and his father's wandering around. And he said to the boy at the back, he's, uh, he said, Why aren't you praying? And he said, I don't know how to pray, Dad. And his dad says, pray anyway. <laughs> he opened his mouth to pray and he found himself speaking in tongues. And he was the brother of the boy at the front. And it just went on like that. And another young lady said, well, I, I think the Holy Spirit's, but I'm not sure. And so well, let's pray together. And there's no doubt the Spirit. Was well, it went on like that. There was a, an elderly, a, an elder man, not elderly, a man in his 50s who was not supposed to be in this youth meeting, but he got in there somehow. And he's with his wife and he said to me, they said, look, we we've, we've been prayed for by everybody who's anybody. And for years, my husband, she said, has been seeking the fullness of the Spirit. And he said, yeah, I've been prayed for over and over. So we chatted a few minutes and I just uh, we just prayed together. And the Holy Spirit came upon him. He began to pray in tongues. His wife gave him a big hug. And they were very happy that God had touched them like that. Um, that meeting started at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. Uh, the last of the children, the young people, left about quarter to two in the afternoon. Our service was supposed to finish at 11.30. Uh, I finished supposed to finish at 11, actually. And just it just went on and on like that. Um, the pastor's wife, senior pastor's wife for the whole mission was, was there. And she had a box of tissues, and she'd been giving them out during this prayer time because a lot of young people were crying. And after she went around, she was mopping up tears, puddles of tears off the floor. I've never seen that anywhere before or since. All these tears on the floor, she's, she's wiping them up to dry the floor. Uh, some of the kids, uh, when they got home uh, that, that night... They didn't want to watch television. They wanted to go to their room and pray. Uh, homework was a real hassle because they'd rather pray than do homework. <laughs> they, they had to do the homework too. Uh, their parents got, some, of them, some of the parents were delighted, but some got really worried. They thought their kids had gone mad because they just wanted to pray all the time. They didn't want to do anything else. Um, I was told afterwards, I think 34, 34 of those young people were filled with the Holy Spirit that night, that, that morning for the first time in that meeting. So it was just a wonderful... A visitation from God just a wonderful pouring out of the Holy Spirit and I'd love to be able to tell you that next Sunday I went to another church and the same thing happened again well of course it doesn't work like that every situation is unique um, but um, that's a sort of, that's what we mean by visitation when something marvellous like that happens a, a number of those young people became leaders in the church it was just a divine uh, visitation a gifting of God on that place which um, no one had planned for no one anticipated it. When I went to the meeting, hoping some of the young people might be filled with the Spirit, but I had no idea that something like that was going to happen. Uh, just a beautiful thing. But a visitation like that, you can't live like that. You can't do that every Sunday, because you had parents waiting for to take their kids home. You had other little children in Sunday school that had to be picked up afterwards, and they had to be fed and lunched and everything. And and then, of course, homework has to be done and, and the parents have to go to work and, and there's all sorts of things. There's, there's other meetings happen and if, you, if one meeting goes over time in a church where you've got several services happening at once then that affects the whole program. So you can't sustain that. and That's why uh, we've got there on, on the screen it says uh, something about... Uh, oh, the previous one said uh, visitation is so intense you can't sustain it. You just The intensity cannot be sustained. So um, if we think that's revival then we're making a mistake because um, you just can't sustain a, a move like that. You, it's, it's great on the short term, but you can't live on it. It's just too much to live on. But this is what, So what do visitations do? Well, they, they help us to uh, understand what God can do if he really sets his, his heart and mind to do it and what can happen, uh, even though we may not be particularly uh, looking for it. In fact, there are some scholars who argue that a visitation from on high cannot be planned for; cannot be programmed. it's just it's a sovereign act of God. The great Jonathan Edwards, for example, believed that very strongly, and others as well. You might know about from history. They're quite sure in their own minds that that sort of thing you can't orchestrate it, you can't plan it, you can't make it happen. But when God wants it to happen, then He will do it. So, so what is a visitation? Well it's uh, a few things we can say about it. Visitation is transient uh, and that's why we call it a visit. It's a, uh, you may, maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a month. Someone comes and visits and stays longer than a month. It's no longer a visitation, it's a habitation. Yeah, they're moving in. <laughs> visits are usually transient, they're usually short term and so um, it's, a, it's, it's a departure from the norm. In other words, uh, when well, visitors come to stay, for example, you've got to maybe get some extra beds out, you've got to rearrange the rooming and the, the, uh, where people sleep or sit. And uh, If they've got visitors for a meal, they get extra chairs, extra food. It's a departure from them. It's not the normal way of life. It's usually for a special purpose. A visitor is usually uh, for the purpose of celebrating a birthday or anniversary or something, or um, maybe it's a, a visit to a hospital where you're, um, you're going to see someone who's sick. It's very short term. It's usually pleasant. Most visitations are, are happy times where um, we, uh, we are celebrating something. We're getting together with family we haven't seen for a long time perhaps. It's, also, it's usually a joyful time. It's sometimes unpleasant. Next door neighbour comes in, wants to have a fight with you over the leaves of your tree falling in your swimming pool or something. So it can be unpleasant, uh, that, that sort of thing. But visitations are usually short term. Um, sometimes we use the term about uh, pastoral visitation where we talk about people in the church going and visiting others who are in need of maybe sick people or lonely people. But again, it's, it's, it's just, you don't go and stay there. You visit, you go on, you visit somebody else. So it's that kind of arrangement. So reading read in a scripture of Paul and Barnabas, for example, saying, uh, let's go back and visit the churches where we've been already, going back for a short-term visit. Or Jesus talked to visiting those in prison, or visiting orphans and widows, which James mentions. And then Martha, you remember, prepared for the coming of Jesus. She got everything ready for his visit. So that's visitation, a short-term, transient departure from the norm for a special purpose which is usually pleasant. Uh, now, in the Bible, there are basically two reasons for visitation. Now, sometimes you have to read the King James Version of the Bible to pick this because some of the modern versions don't use the word visit. They use another word. Um, or or 20, 20, 20, several different words they might use. Um, but that's what the word literally is, shall I not visit. So Jeremiah says, Shall I not visit them for these things, declares the Lord? They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds and deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They don't defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not visit them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Shall I not visit them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? It's in the same words in a different chapter. And in chapter six, he says, "Be warned, O Jerusalem." So the purpose of a visitation here in these Old Testament passage is very clearly as a warning, calling people to repentance. Um, there's another some more scripture reference down the bottom of the screen there. Um, actually, this bit's still working, isn't it? So just just here, you barely see them. Uh, but uh, Exodus twenty, verse five, we God talked about visiting uh, the iniquities of uh, over several generations. Le- Leviticus twenty-six. The passage there, uh, the Lord says a number of things he's going to do to Israel. Um, but he said, but, and if you don't repent, then we'll do this. And if you don't repent, we'll do that. If you don't repent, we'll do this. And the whole purpose of the visitation was unpleasant visitation. The whole purpose of it was to bring the people to repentance. And these other passages, Psalm 89 and Jeremiah 23 three, two, they say basically the same thing. God says, if, if trouble is coming on your community, on your nation, then this is why." And so sometimes there is a visitation from God which, which results in repentance. And um, in fact, many times it, things that we call revival sometimes are more like visitations of, of God's warning, calling people to repent. Now in, in my book on, called This is Revival, this one here, I was telling you about, um, there's some story. What I tried to do with this was to not to tell some of the very well-known stories. And to pick out some lesser no, well-known ones that you might find more interesting. So, for example, a story from Barrio in, in Borneo in uh, East Malaysia. It happened um, probably 40 years ago now where a, a young uh, school teacher named uh, Solomon, oh, what's his surname, first name Solomon, um, was uh, teaching a, a, a Sunday school class of boys. Uh, it was actually in a school, but they were using the school for the Sunday school class. And uh, this uh, young man, Solomon, Solomon Bulai, he had got to a stage in his life where he, he thought he was not living a consistent Christian life, thought he was not um, being a true disciple of Jesus. And so he um, said to the boys uh, at this, on this particular Sunday, he said, look, I, I want to tell you, said, I am not going to be teaching anymore. He said, i realise that my life is not in order and I'm not, I'm, if I'm trying to teach you, I'm being a hypocrite. So he said, I'm, I'm just telling you, like, there are things in my life that aren't right. And so um, I, until I sort them out, I'm, I'm not going to teach you anymore. So this will be my last class. And he stopped and there was silence. And I don't know what reaction you might expect to happen at a time like that. Uh, imagine you're one of the boys in the class and what you think you might expect to happen. But uh, what did happen was that within a few moments, one of the boys stood up and he said, Sir, he said, My life's not too good either. He said, "There are things in my life that aren't right." He said, "I need to get right with God." So he fell on his knees and started to pray. Another boy hopped up and he said, "Same, same here." He said, oh, "My life is, is out of order too. I've, I've I've got things that I I shouldn't be doing. What I'm doing." So, and uh, one by one, these boys, the whole class, finished up. All of them on their knees, and uh, not just crying, but sobbing, and howling, because of their sin. But just desperately. Uh, convicted of sin because of, this teacher sat there kind of shocked because he, he just thought he was going to walk out of there humiliated and embarrassed, although he, he, he knew he had to do it. And here's this whole move of God in this school, so much so that people from around the campus heard the cries and shouts and came, to, came in to see what was going on. And the, the, the word got out, and amongst other people, and there's, there's a whole big story about it of how in this place called Barrio, uh, there was a widespread visitation from God that not just touched the school, but touched the communities around about. Some of them, uh, many of the children lived in villages some distance away. And so when they went home, they talk, told their parents what had happened. Then the parents started to become convicted of sin, and they began to weep and howl over their sins. And so other villages, there were little revival, uh, pockets of revival and, and returning back to God. Uh, miracles began to happen. One group of girls were going home one, late one night, uh, back to their village and got lost. And so they prayed and a light appeared on the pathway before them showing them which path they should follow to get back to where they needed to go. And there were signs in the skies. one even published in the newspaper of for a cloud formation that was seen to be a, a God confirming what was happening in this place. And that went on for some weeks. Because, as I said, visitations usually can't be sustained. They're so intense emotionally and so intense spiritually that people usually just can't, uh, You just can't keep on like that. You've got to kind of get back to balance again. But those things do call people to repentance. And sometimes when the spirit of God moves like that then, and people are shaken like that, then it's, it's, it's a deep work of God. Um, Jeffrey Bingham is a name, maybe name, known, known to some of you, it was a missionary in Pakistan for many years, lived in Adelaide most of his life. Uh, he had an experience in Pakistan also some years prior to this where, uh, again, the same thing happened. A great move of the Spirit, P- people confessing their sins amongst uh, amongst the people, and the missionaries beginning to confess their sins as well. And uh, and then great expressions of love as they began to forgive one another and uh, to uh, help one another. Uh, as, as But it started with this deep sense of conviction of sin and a deep sense of God visiting them and kind of putting the searchlight, the spotlight on their lives and exposing those things that were in their hearts. I... Uh, I have two mixed feelings about all that. One is I'm deeply challenged by it. The other one is I'm glad I wasn't there. (laughs) I don't know how I would feel about publicly confessing my sins. And I don't know what you think about that either. And they learned very quickly, as they did in East Africa in the 1950s, where something similar occurred, that they had to tell people not to be specific in giving details of their sins publicly because that was less than helpful. And so, uh, people had to learn how to manage things. But in, it's interesting in Barrio, uh, in the in East in Borneo, I uh, one of the men, a friend of mine who is now living in Sydney, attends Wesley International Congregation where I was pastoring for a time. Uh, he used to be a school inspector, and he uh, I went to East Malaysia with him and my wife and I and his wife on a holiday. We found everywhere he went, people seemed to know him. And we we just in a little tiny village walked into a little shop. And the guy behind the counter says, um, hi, oh, he says, um, hello, hello, Mr. Goh. He says, it's nice to see you again. And he used to be a kid in school and I hadn't seen this guy for 20 years, but he's recognised him. He, walked, he knew everybody. But he told us that um, the education department and other government departments in, uh, in Borneo uh, generally went looking to the barrio area when they wanted employees. Because they knew that the people of that area were the people they could trust, because they were honest and they were reliable and they were trustworthy. I thought, isn't that a wonderful testimony to the the ongoing result of that? And so, you've got on the one hand the this the impact of this visitation, but then that's visitation. Then then the revival. There's the fact that it kept on going. And two different, two different things there. So, um, that's that's visitation. That's what visitation is all about. Firstly, for repentance, but also. What's happened to my computer? A lot to be said for old-fashioned pen and paper sometimes. Here we are. Also, visitation is for redemption. First for repentance, second for redemption. Now look at these words here. These are spoken uh, by um, Prophet Zechariah at the time of the birth of Jesus, John the Baptist's father. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to shine on those who sit in darkness and in death's shadow and to guide our feet into the way of peace. There you have that phrase, visited. He has visited us there twice. He has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited us to shine on those who sit in darkness. So this is a different approach. Some more scriptures at the bottom there, the Genesis 51, how Joseph prophesied that God would visit the people and deliver them from Egypt there's Ruth, which talks about God visiting the, the people with, excuse me, with prosperity. Psalm 106 and Jeremiah 29:10, both passages talk about God releasing the people from captivity and returning them to their own land, all through visitation from on high. And Psalm 106, the psalmist says, Vis, "Visit me with your salvation," which is a line that Wesley picked up in his great hymn, "Love Divine, All Loves Excelling." "Visit us with thy salvation," he has a sing, which is a straight quote from there. So that's the positive side of visitation. And a little picture on the screen, of course, a Christmas picture, uh, because that's how God, the greatest visitation ever, was when God visited his people by sending his son Jesus to die. It's an extraordinary thing. So that's that's a positive uh, visitation and redemption. And sometimes the two go together. The visitation that uh, comes with a warning and a conviction, convicting power, uh, and, and brings people to their knees in confession and repentance. The same visitation results in a regeneration and a redemption and people rising up in new life and new faith and new hope. So it, it, works, it works both ways. That was illustrated in uh, 1850-something in Moonta in South Australia. Now you may not know Moonta is a mining town. It was a mining town. Well, They're opening up some of the mines again up now to have another go at them. Uh, it was a lot of Cornish people there, a lot of Cornish Methodists. And uh, some very quite thriving churches, a community of about 1,100 people. And uh, several churches there are quite strong and flourishing. Biggest of which was the to Mines Methodist Church, which seated about 1,200 people. The building is still there today. You see a photo of it in my book. And what happened there was that um, one Sunday morning, they actually held a funeral service in the service for a, a high school girl who had died. I have not been able to find out what caused her death, but but she had died, obviously, something and uh, so they, were, they were, um, had this service and what happened at the service is not recorded anywhere that I know but something happened because uh, during that morning service some other young girls decided that they wanted to follow Jesus they, that night at the evening service more did the same and during the whole week a whole lot of young people just turned to Christ uh, motivated by the fact that this teenage girl had died so quickly and so unexpectedly uh, other churches were touched by this uh, the whole whole town became a town of people uh, wanting to pray and to seek the Lord and and to get their lives right with God. And there were uh, hundreds and hundreds of people professed conversion to Christ in that small community. Churches got together. And I was reminded of the story today when I went for a, I was driving in here from the airport uh, where we were staying and then uh, just having a walk around the area and seeing the circus tent on this brightly coloured uh, canvas and so on. Because one night in Moonta. A circus came and did what the people have done here, set up all their tents and everything, got ready for a circus and nobody went to the circus. There was a prayer meeting that night. Everybody went to the prayer meeting. (laughs) Nobody went to the circus. Now, nothing wrong with circuses that I'm aware of. um, But uh, on this occasion, the, the presence of God was so intense and people were so moved by the Spirit that even a visiting circus was not enough to lure them away from going to wait upon the Lord in prayer. So that's both for repentance and redemption. People repenting of their sin but also being redeemed into a rather different kind of life. So I found this quotation in the Oxford Shorter English Dictionary Mercies are visitations. God comes in kindness and love to us to do us good. He visiteth us. 1643. Mercies are visitations. God comes in kindness and love to do us good. He visiteth us. So I think. What we learn so far uh, from from all this is uh, this this kind of twofold uh, aspect of biblical visitation. Imagine uh, this is your house on the screen, and uh, God comes to visit. Well, there's there's uh, two ways. He can come with a message of repentance, which, in playing upon words, I've called a house warning. Or he can come with a promise of redemption, which, playing upon words, I've called a house warming. So. The question is Does he come into your life and my life as a warning or as a warning? Which is it? Because they're both different aspects of repentance. And I think the, the repentance side of it, the visitation side, gives us a taste of what life can be like if we go on living like that. And we're going to talk a bit more about revival in a minute and what that means. But at this stage, we've got this, this visitation concept. And there you can see it the black on the left hand side indicating God's coming and visiting with warning. Then the green blue on the other side, redemption or new life. And there's, there's the two things. And the challenge for us at this point tonight is how are we going to respond to that sort of thing? What if here tonight the Holy Spirit began to convict us of sin so that we found ourselves in a place where we just wanted to just unburden and offload. We had to just, under a kind of divine compulsion, just to weep and wail over our sins. What if? what if and that causes us to think now and to look at our own hearts I'm sure and say well what would I be weeping over what would I be confessing what would, what would be grieving my heart and grieving God's heart if that were to happen and I would suggest that if it doesn't happen here tonight it should happen when you get home tonight we should be getting on our knees and, and saying oh God there's something in my life that isn't right need you to do something about that. I need a personal visitation in my life. I need a personal visitation. And, and our community needs, we need a visitation from God. Prophet Isaiah said, Woe to those who call good evil and who call evil good. We see a lot of that in our community today, where a lot of things that um, are evil actually being called good. And sin is being whitewashed. And unbelief is being whitewashed. You know, Our society is, is being deceived all around the place by all sorts of lies and false statements. About God and about everything else, really. We um, see it lies in, in not new, in I suppose, in politics. Lies in, certainly in the press. We see um, press uh, crowd cry murder if you suggest any kind of censorship. In effect, they censorship. They practice censorship all the time by choosing what they tell us and what they don't, and how they do it. And we have a community which is full of dishonesty and lots of other things. And we need visitation from God in our community. But it would be hypocritical for us to be praying, Lord, send a visitation on the newspapers and on the television stations and everything else if we're not prepared for God to visit our lives. And we need to be honest enough to lay our own souls and hearts bare before God. So we say, Lord, God, I don't want any area of my life to be untouched. Don't any part of me to be untouched. I need the Holy Spirit to, to search in every corner. Imagine your life's like the house on the screen there. Every corner needs to be searched out because in every house there are spider webs and dust balls and and, uh, greasy spots and hidden places. Uh, And we're saying, Lord, I want my life to be like that. I don't want any of that. I want every single corner to be clean and spotless. And I want you, as the Holy Spirit, I give you permission to just look in every part of me and deal with that. Because sin is a deadly thing. Sin is a virus, and it would destroy us if we're not careful. We need to make sure that sin is dealt with, and we need a personal visitation from God in our lives. By talking to the right people tonight? Is that all right? Is that all right? And then, of course, God comes visiting in warning. He comes with warming as well. And he comes to bring joy and to bring blessing and to bring you know, goodness into our lives. I haven't finished yet, but I just want to ask if we can pray for a moment before I go on. While we pray, I just want to ask you to pray too and ask the Lord to show in your life areas that he may need to deal with. Because the reality is it's it's really all or nothing. It's what he wants. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's what it is. Father, I pray for every one of us, myself included here, Lord, God, that if there's anything at all in our lives that is not submitted to you and not under the cross, oh God, that you will deal with it tonight. We pray that the searchlight of your Holy Spirit's convicting power will shine on even the darkest corners of every part of our lives. Dear Father, that we may be clean in every respect and ready to live for Jesus every day of our lives. Amen. Amen. I want to show you a photo of me. I want you to tell me whether it's a photo of God's coming upon my life in judgment or it's coming upon my life in blessing. What do you think? Pretty impressive, eh? Yeah. It's a fake. It's a fake. Um, when the photo was originally taken, there was a light behind my head. It looked like a halo, so I committed the photographer on capturing the halo so he said he thought, he thought, I can do better than that. So he sent this one back as well. And some people were very impressed when they saw it. They thought, oh, that's God's blessing. But I notice in the scripture that most times fire is a sign of judgment. So I put number 1635 there. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. So. Okay, that was just like a commercial, just a bit of comic relief while we go on. Okay. So, what is revival? Well, revival in the general sense of the word is Restoration to life of something that has died or is about to die. I mean, not that's not the religious, that's just a general definition. So, if someone is about almost drowned and we get him back to life, we say the victim has been revived, or an old song comes back again, and we say that's a revival of an old song, or an old custom might be revived, or and then, of course, it may be faith. So, it has a very general term, but it always means bringing back to life something that was dead or almost dead. That's its general meaning. Okay, so psalmist says, oh God, who is like you? You've made me see many troubles and calamities. Oh, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. So there's revival. You will revive me. You'll bring me back to life again. And that's really what revival is. It is more than just a visitation. A visitation is a kind of a, a jolt. It's a kind of a shot in the arm to remind us of what the Lord wants of us. <clears throat> it's a kind of an in- inducement to get cracking. But revival is going on in that life. It's not just the spectacularness of the moment, it's going on beyond that. Now, back to our Bible reading that we had at the beginning. I'm just going to read the th- the verse 13, the green words there. The days are going to come, describes the Lord, and this is from Amos chapter 9, when the one who ploughs will catch up to the one who harvests, the one who stomps on grapes will catch up to the one who plants. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Now that is a prophecy in the first part about restoring uh, ruined places. That is a prophecy about a restored kingdom and a continuous harvest. Uh, It's a prophecy about the church. It's not just visitation. This is ongoing. So it's interesting that when um, the church in the New Testament held its first uh, general council, that James, one of the apostles, quoted that passage of scripture. That's what he quoted. If you go back one verse, please. Um, back, he quoted that passage of scripture about the, the rebuilding the ruined places of David. David's fallen in, and the, the harvest time. You know, when, and see what the picture is there in verse 13. You know, the, the plowman, the, the, the harvester is bringing in the crop, and the, the plowman's already ready to start planting the next one. Not even no fallow ground, no season. I think he's ready to go, and. Um, then the one who's stamping the grapes, stomping on the grapes to get the wine, the, the, the someone already planting the, the new, and the, and the new wine will drip from the mountain. In other words, there'll be, it'll be so much, such an abundant harvest. So it's like there's just one continual bringing in of the crop. Well, James quoted that. And if you can see, uh, go one more further, two more, next one again. See here, um, that, uh, this is what it says. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And now he's quoting from Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of humankind may seek the lord and all the gentiles who are called by my name says the lord who makes these things known from of old now i haven't time to kind of unpack all of that but enough to say that james had read those words from amos about the abundant harvest and the rebuilding of the fallen tent and everything and he says um, this is what has now happened through a visitation from god in the person of jesus this is what has happened and now people everywhere are calling on the name of the lord it's like a harvest that's just going on and on and on, an abundant harvest. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Burgeon, uh, put it like this. He said, I do trust our harvest will be so heavy that while we are taking in the harvest, it shall be time to sow again. That prayer meeting shall be succeeded by the inquiry of souls to what they shall do to be saved. And that ere the inquirer's meeting shall be done, it shall be time to preach again and again to pray. And then ere that is over, there will be another influx of souls, that the baptismal pool shall again be stirred, and hundreds of converted shall flock to Christ. Now Mark, here is a promise given of revival. He's talking again about Amos. When that revival shall be fulfilled, this will be one of the signs of it, the marvellous growth and grace of those who are converted. The young convert shall that very day come forward and make a profession of his faith. Perhaps before a week has passed, you will hear him publicly defending the cause of Christ. And in many months, you will see him standing up to tell others what God has done for his soul. As the fire from heaven shall the spirit rush from the skies. And as a sacrifice which instantly blazed to heaven, so shall the church burn with holy and glorious ardour. That's Spurgeon, Spurgeon's understanding of that passage of Amos. He also sees it as a promise for the church promise of ongoing revival in a way that we haven't seen before but it's not just short term it's going all the time an ongoing thing in other words Jesus abides in the house all the time he comes to stay okay uh, it's not just not just visitation he's the same house but now the heart there represents that he's there in the house he's come to stay in the house and that is revival that is the ongoing experience of Christ in our lives now from the beginning, the word revival was prominent in the CRC. This is a CRC church, which I presume you know. If not, have a look on the door as you come in. There's a sign there that says that. Um, now, CRC used to be called the National Revival Crusade. We're going back to the 1940s. So for some of you, it was a very long time ago. Actually, it's the same distance for all of us, isn't it? But it seems longer ago, the younger you are. Now, it used to be called the National, because it was a crusade, for revival in the nation of Australia, that's why it was given that name initially. <clears throat> and then uh, one of the church, one of the congregations uh, broke away and registered the name National, so we then changed it to Commonwealth Revival Crusade. Now my memory goes back to those early days. I remember when it was National Revival Crusade. <laughs> so that's giving away something. In fact, um, you know, I, I used to think about the people who started the work as, as the old timers, and now I realise that I was actually uh, the, the work formally started in 1945. Uh, there were meetings before that, but the actual work formally started then. Well, I was baptised in the Spirit in 1952, which is seven years after that. So I'm now one of the old-timers. I'm one of the pioneers. I go back to those really early days. So I remember a lot of this. And then um, then the Commonwealth government uh, passed some sort of legislation that meant you couldn't use Commonwealth as part of your name unless you had government approval. So then we finally became Christian. We became the Christian Revival Crusade. We weren't, weren't Christian before that. Um, and then more recently, uh, partly because the word crusade is a very offensive word to Middle Eastern people, particularly Muslims and Jews, um, we uh, thought, that, and, and, uh, thought that wasn't a wise name to be using. We want to reach out. And also because we want to reach out to the nations and not just to Australia, which the work is doing, we've now just become CRC churches, international, which is a bit of tautology because it actually says Christian revival, churches, churches, but we get away with it somehow. And so so there's been a bit of a progression in the name, but you notice one word hasn't changed. The other words have all changed, one way or the other. One word hasn't changed. What's the word? Revival. (laughs) Revival hasn't changed. Revival was the centre of this work and by the grace of God will continue to be. But it won't just be automatic. It happens as we continue to make a mission to see that that is what happens well let's just a bit of history here um, the early magazines May, May 1946 that's a year after the work formally began uh, the, the local the magazine then called Echoes of Grace said proclaiming the full kingdom gospel of regeneration restoration and Pentecostal revival for Israel anglo saxondom anglo saxondom meant the, basically the British Commonwealth of Nations and, the, and, and America basically that area that's where the vision, the vision was first for Australia, then for the Anglo-Saxon peoples. In June 1948, it said it was published in the interest of Interdenominational Revival by Pastor Leo C. Harris. And uh, I presume you all know that name. Yes, yeah, some of you may not, some of you are too young probably. Well, Leo Harris was the man who really, his father really started the work, but it was under Leo in 1945 that the it the, became formally organised. And then in March, April 1952, said it was dedicated to the interests of a great latter-day revival and the awakening message of Bible prophecy. Notice that one word is there all the way through. The other word's change, but that one's there. In 1956, you should write a song. That sounds good. Uh, Dedicated to the promotion of salvation, healing, revival, and the awakening message of Bible prophecy. And then in November 1958, the cover story said, Crusading for revival. And then in 1966, there was a cover story, Revival on the River Murray. And that was the beginnings of the uh, number of churches began to establish, including this one ultimately uh, right up through the Riverina area. 1967, my brother Ken wrote a series of studies published in the magazine called Revival. Now, so you can see Revival was a very strong and important part of this. There's covers there of a couple of the magazines in those early days. As the magazine was called, The Revivalist You see, one of those covers has the word revival in very bold print, like made of stone, over the nation and the rain coming down. Uh, That all the way through, that was uh, those early days. This was the theme of the movement—a theme saying we believe in revival across the nation and indeed across the world. Now, Leo Harris's view on revival was revolutionary. It bypassed the self-centered, self-afflicting reward for holiness concept so popular today. Let me explain that. Um, the most common belief today about revival is if we pray hard enough and work hard enough, then we'll have revival. Well, that really isn't biblical, not what the Bible teaches. We used to sing songs about it, though. That's i we used to sing in those 1950s, and I'll change the words to make it Griffith. If you believe and I believe and we together strive, the Holy Spirit will come down and Griffith will revive. And Griffith will revive and Griffith will revive. The Holy Spirit will come down and Griffith will revive. So easy. You believe, we strive together, it's going to happen. No. Well, it wasn't quite that simple because it wasn't just our believing and our striving that produced revival. It's a work of God. And then um, oh, there's a whole lot of songs like that that indicate the more we pray, the harder we work, then we'll see revival, <clears throat> which made it really a result of human effort rather than divine impartation. But Pastor Harris saw revival as a word based and Christ centered phenomenon. And uh, there's a whole lot of discussion about this in my book uh, on, on his teaching and believing. Now, here's some, some of the things he said. Uh, this is, um, you notice, by the way, the dates of his life, 1920 to 1977. He's only 57 when he died, a relatively young man. Same age as Charles Spurgeon, actually. Charles Spurgeon was also 57 when he died. So. Well, that's a feature of greatness. I don't know if it is. I missed it. <laughs> We're well, we'll pass that now. He goes on, he wrote this. Revival is the fanning of dying embers into a blazing fire, once again. Revival is restoration. You know, there's a whole lot of re-words here. Restoration to life and strength and power of that which is about to die. Restoring of things that are almost dead. Revival is recovery of that which is lost. For the church, revival must mean fresh reception of the life and power of the Holy Spirit and a return to the forgotten truths of the Word of God. These words, restoration, recovery, reception, return. Revival is the awakening of the church of the responsibility, another one, and the restoration to the church of the power of the Spirit and the recovery of the church of forgotten truths of the New Testament. Same words again. Thus enabling it to meet its challenge and to fulfil its calling. Overall, uh, Leo Harris saw three crucial elements in the whole area of revival. The revelation of an everlasting omnipotent Christ. I'm going to come back to these points. The recognition of a full orb ministry and the restoration of the New Testament pattern for the local church. And these are crucial, um, strong points in his preaching and teaching. Now, I remember sitting in an Adelaide tram one morning, going from point A to point B. I'm not sure which was A and which was B. I was going somewhere. And I was reading a little book that had been published in the mid nineteen forties. This must have been, oh, it must be in the nineteen fifties when I got the little book. And it was called the New Testament Pattern for the Local Church. It was um, little orange coloured covered paperback, not very big. Uh, and I remember reading uh, Pastor Harris's teaching on revival, and I'd, I was a Christian already. I'd become a Christian at the age of ten. I'd give my life to Jesus when I was still young. Um, But um, I never read anything like this. I never heard anything like this. And he was talking about how it was God's intention for the whole, for every local church to be a church in revival, not a church that was hoping for it or you know trusting or um, wondering, but a church that was actually experiencing revival. Um, And I had I had been in uh, in some CRC meetings because of my age. I was still just a a yeah, teenager, um, my homework and high school studies, my dad wouldn't let me go out much during the week, so I didn't get much. But um, uh, maybe a few years later, the early 60s, I remember going into Sturt Street and the Crusade Hall there, and it was a phenomenal experience. Because here was a church that every week, week after week after week, was experiencing revival. And it was a remarkable thing. Uh, I, I've been doing some research into the history of this, as you know. Of a historian, and I talk to people, and they say, You know, you could sense God's presence when you were still half a mile away from the building. And I remember that. Remember I, and and not many people had cars in those days, we mostly traveled by, uh, by public transport. And I remember you know, going on the tram or on the train and then walking from the station or the stop to the church, and, and you just sensed you know, the excitement. You hadn't even seen anybody yet, you're just walking to the place, and you could sense that you know, something is going to happen in that place that night. The building then was, it was called Crusade Hall. Was seated about five hundred people. It was jam packed every Sunday night, uh, and every week people were being saved, people were being healed. And in fact, uh, I remember about this time at one point, where well, one Sunday came along and nobody responded to the order call to, to give their lives to Christ, and the whole church, uh, we needed prayer and fasting. And they thought God has left us, <laughs> and the Spirit has departed, because nobody, nobody decided to follow Jesus. Now, looking back now, I know that some of those people who responded didn't follow on with it. Some of them just went out the front and then went out the back, and that was that. <laughs> didn't see them again. But many of them were genuine conversions and, and many genuine healings that took place. And some of those have been well documented. Uh, and there was just week after week where we're seeing God in action and seeing the Spirit moving in that place. And, and it wasn't just that the name of the thing was, uh, it was Christian Revival Crusaders had become by then, uh, but it was, it was revival. It was, was happening. in the the whole place. Uh, It was just an ongoing thing and we experienced a church that was actually living in a state of continuing and continual revival. Uh, That's a pretty rare thing in a church. Um, So back to my tram story. So I'm reading this there and and I read this thing about the the local church and the, the revision of Jesus in the book of Revelation. So I want to read a bit from Revelation. This was what he was talking about in that little book on that Adelaide tram. On turning, says John... I saw seven golden lampstands. Can we go on? There we are. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. In His right hand he held held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, if you look at that description, some of those things um, are are very challenging and I haven't got time to go through them tonight here. But things like um, the hair was white like white wool. speaks very much of, of purity. And then his eyes like a flame of fire. But that is here, somewhere there. You have eyes that kind of look at you and burn right through you. And this is Jesus' eyes. His feet like burnished bronze. And then um, his voice like the sound of many waters, you know, like a great roar when he spoke. No PA system, just this great, a huge roar, just coming from a spot. But it seemed like it's coming from everywhere, like the roar of a great waterfall. Um, and then a um, sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, which, is, of course, represents the word of God. Um, and then um, his face like the sun shining in full strength. In other words, you couldn't look at his face because it was so strong. It was just too dazzling. It would hurt your eyes to look. Um, and then, uh, and, and that's, that's the kind of vision that, that John saw of Jesus here. But that wasn't what this little book was about. It's about the fact that in verse 13, up at the top of the second line there, it says, In the midst of the Lamb stands was one like a son of man. Jesus is there in the midst of the lampstands. He's surrounded by these seven lampstands. If you go down um, to verse 20, towards the bottom, uh, the seven lampstands are, are the seven churches. So here, And these are the churches to which letters are written in the next two chapters. So here's Jesus in the midst of the seven churches. And what Pastor Harris uh, extracted from that and taught that, he said this was not the, the menorah, you know, the seven branch Jewish uh, lampstands, like three half-circles, It wasn't like that. It wasn't one lamp with seven branches. It was seven individual lampstands, all separate. He was making the point that Jesus is in the midst of the local churches, that he has a direct relationship with each local church, not with the whole movement, but through each local church, which is why in some movements you've got some churches that are flourishing and some that have not been revived, which is a polite way of saying they're dead. Um, You get both things in the same movement. Um, uh, So belonging to a movement doesn't necessarily mean you're in revival. He was saying every local church can be in revival, but you've got to have a direct relationship with Jesus. Each local church needs to be in fellowship with him. And so the direction and the passion and the vision of each local church needs to come from him. So this is what he wrote. Jesus, the glorified head of the church universal, walks amongst the local churches. That's the astonishing thing. He's the head of the whole church, but he walks in the local churches. He, ministering to them, commanding them, rebuking them, and correcting and blessing them. When you read the the letters in chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters, you know, he commends them. He said, uh, you know, I I, like to Ephesus, he says, you "You have not denied my name and you have done good work, you have hung on, but I have something against you. You have abandoned your first love. Nevertheless, um, you know, to him who overcomes. So you've got this this combination of rebuking and commanding and, and blessing. Every local church stands as a witness to the risen, triumphant and glorified Christ. He has died and been raised and ascended and all authority is given unto him in heaven and on earth all authority given to him he has defeated the devil, his authority is supreme, hence every local church can have victory every local church can have revival and this was this is what I was reading on that on that tram this is actually from a later book, but it's pretty much word for word what was in that original book which I've now lost so that, that was the theme that uh, that Revival was a possibility. It wasn't some impossible thing. It wasn't some far-off dream. It wasn't just dependent upon a sovereign visitation. A visitation or not, we could still be living a life of revival uh, simply because we live in relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, Leo Harris died in September 1977. In August 1977, uh, he announced that he was going to preach on Sunday night on the topic if I only had one sermon to preach and he told us when he began to speak and I was there at the meeting he said how uh, he, um, he'd been wondering if, if he could never preach again except for this he had one, last op- one last time one last opportunity if he could never preach again what would he say what would he say if he only had one sermon to say it in um, and so this, he preached this sermon on this August night um, four weeks later he actually died a month afterwards, so it almost was his last sermon. Personally, I'm never going to preach on that topic. <laughs> but the four main points he made, the four main points he made were these: first of all, rebirth. This is the great central truth that Christ came to bring us new life. In other words, he's going to preach the gospel, the old-fashioned good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish should have everlasting life. He was going to just preach the simple, plain, old-fashioned gospel. No gimmicks, no tricks, uh, no, no fancy things, no, no jumping, falling, dancing, waving, uh, crying, laughing, or none of that stuff. Now, if it happens, it happens, but, but that wasn't what he was going to be focusing on. He was going to focus on the simple, plain message of the gospel, the good news, which is what our world needs today. They need it today, because the trouble is they don't know they need it, and they don't want it at a phone call, as you probably get sometimes, I guess. Do you get telemarketing telemark- people ringing you up? Yeah, yeah, you do, obviously. I work at home these days when I'm not travelling and I get lots of them. So the lady brings up, wants to off offer me a new funeral plan. So I listened to her for a while and I said, can I ask you a question? She says, what? I said, uh, what sort of plan have you got for after your funeral? And she says, look, our funeral plan is very good. I said, no, I'm not asking about your plan. I, I said, I'm asking, what, what about after your funeral? Well, our plan, no, no, not your plan. What about after your funeral? And she pauses, she says, she says are you talking about heaven and hell? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I said, I am. Oh, she says, I don't believe in that. And I said, well, I'm so sorry for you because that means you must be living a life without hope. How can you live without hope? And she hung up at that point. <laughs> um, but the other day, someone who rang up with the same thing i mean this has happened many times now a man this time and i asked him the same question and uh so we finally got we stopped trying to come back at me and i said look seriously you know, what will happen to you after you die if i don't know and i said well you know if i'm right and then i explained the gospel to him. i said you yeah, know you can have eternal life you can know you're living forever because jesus died and Jesus was buried, he rose again. And if you trust in him, you can live forever. He said, Oh, well, he said, Yeah, I suppose, maybe. And so I said to him, Look, if you're right and I'm wrong, I've lost nothing. But if I'm right and you're wrong, you've lost everything. He said, Oh, maybe. <laughs> so, and, and the, but a girl the other day, I said the same thing to her, and, and I said, Do you have a church? He said, Oh, not really. He said, But I'm, I'm interested. Uh, where do you live? Live in the Gold Coast. I like, said, so look, there's some great churches in the Gold Coast. I said, so some people think of churches being sort of old-fashioned and stuffy and you know, old-fashioned clothes and old-fashioned hymns and things. Hard, it's hard. To see, said, so look for a new one. I so said, there's some really nice new churches in the Gold Coast where they've got good music and good preaching. She yeah, I will, she said. I will. I'll, I'll go and find one. So you know, you can't talk too long because they've got supervisors watching over them and they've got to get so many calls in an hour and so on, so uh, you can't want to make trouble for them. Um, but that's just, you know, just the simple gospel. It's, it's, uh, and... Um, I don't know what good it does, but it's fun. <laughs> and um, one thing is for sure, uh, it usually makes the calls fairly short. <laughs> so it saves me time if there's nothing else. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, I've got strategies for people who want to sell me a new telephone plan. You ever heard of the Royal Telephone Company? It's great. Never get a busy signal. Line never breaks down. Never get any static. You always get the person you want. You always get an answer every time. I said, wonderful. And best of all, it's free. <laughs> so, I said, so, of course, I'm talking about prayer. I said, do you pray? You know, said, it's Interesting. Get some interesting conversations. Um, but it's the old-fashioned gospel. It's the old-fashioned gospel, the good news about Jesus. Uh, that's what people need. trouble is most of them are not aware of the fact they need it because I suppose we have such an easy lifestyle in our country, most of us, and they don't think much about eternal life. Revelation. We need a revelation that only comes by the Spirit of God, that we are the children of God. We didn't know that. Now, some people think they are the children of God, but it's not based on revelation, it's based on a myth. But we are the children of God. We need to understand that. And This is where Satanic strategy is very clever at the moment because Satan is really trying to tell everybody they're children of God. And so they don't see their need anymore. And they just see that, I think, really, what, second, what Paul said in Second Corinthians 4, verse 4, that God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe as the light of the gospel, glorious gospel of Christ should shine upon them is even more true than it's ever been. There's so much deception in the world today and it seems like Satan has just managed in our country to just pull the blinkers over almost everybody's eyes. They need revelation. Renewing of our minds, we need to think biblically and focus on God's calling, power, provision, love, mercy and promise. So we need to get our thinking straightened out, he said. And the fourth thing, he said, we need to rename our world. We need to rename our world from God's perspective according to God's word. So... He said things like, um, don't call it a problem, call it an opportunity. Don't call it a disaster, call it a possibility. Don't call it a sickness, call it an opportunity for healing. Don't call it a a cause for worry, call it a a cause for faith. Don't say things looking grim, say things looking great. Rename the world, rename everything. Give it all a positive, biblical, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, God-honoring name. And he preached that much better than I can do. So these are the four big things he made in that, that last sermon in August 1977. So these are the things which, which were dearest to his heart. And although he talked in the early years about Bible prophecy and other things, uh, when he came, came to it, he came back to these four major areas. And what it comes down to is this. We, the revival is simply living out what we already are. That's it. And can you say that with me? Revival is living out what we already are. Let's say it again. I couldn't hear you that time. Revival is simply living out what we already are. He said this, revival is a fanning of dying embers into a blazing fire once again. Revival is a restoration to life and strength and power that which is about to die. Revival is a recovery of that which is lost. For the church, revival must mean a fresh impartation of the life and power of the Holy Spirit and return to the forgotten truths of the Word of God. You see, everything that he's saying here is it's, it's not out there somewhere that we, we're trying to sort of find it in some mysterious way. It's not up in heaven, uh, as uh, both Isaiah and Paul say, not in, in, uh, Moses and Paul said, not up in heaven. You've got to try and bring it down. It's not beneath the earth. You've got to dig it up. But it's here. It's in our, in our hearts. It's in our mouths. It's right here. The very truth that we need. We need to believe that and get hold of that. Uh, his favorite book was the book of Ephesians. He used to preach on that a lot. And to summarize, Ephesians verse 3 of chapter 1 says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God has blessed us. Not He will bless us, not He's going to bless us, but God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In other words, if He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, how many are there left over? None. Every one of His blessings is available to us. Every spiritual blessing, it's every, not every material blessing necessarily. Every spiritual blessing. And tomorrow night we're going to be addressing that subject of the problem of suffering. And it's a very difficult one to handle. It's a very difficult one to cope with, especially when you are suffering. But I hope you'll be here because I think I have some things to say that might be helpful. But because the, the thing is, the gospel doesn't promise us uh, freedom from suffering. It doesn't say we'll never suffer. Uh, it's every spiritual blessing that is ours. But those spiritual blessings enable us to cope with the other, other situations. So he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything is in Christ. Everything is in him. Um, so he, Leo Harris believed we had to live in the light of what we already have, not of what we don't have. One of my students once wrote this in an essay. She said, let your dreams, not your regrets, control your life. Well, what a profound statement from a young woman in the class. I wasn't the best student by any means, but she wrote that. Let your dreams, not your regrets, control your life. In other words live in the light of what we already have not of what we don't have so we can say I am becoming who I already am would you say that with me I am becoming who I already am would you say it again I am becoming who I already am now is that an exciting thought do you think is that encouraging you wouldn't know it from the way you just said it (laughs) I'm sorry I shouldn't be insulting let's say it with, with meaning this time okay I am becoming who I already am. That, we're almost there. One more time. I am becoming who I already am. Now, if you're a Christian in Christ, you have every blessing there is. Every blessing is yours in Him. There's no blessing you don't have. You already got it. It has been given to you. It's past tense. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And think of it like this when a little baby is born in normal circumstances, is that baby a human being? Yes. Yes, clearly. In fact, even with physical defects, you'll still say this child is a human being. In other words, it's a human being, human, and that's what human beings are: they're humans being human. And all our lives, we continue to be humans being human. So, is that little baby any less human than you or I are? No, just as much. And babies can't do much, of course. There's only about three things babies can do. The rest of the time, they're quite useless. But we all love babies. You know? Such cute, adorable little things. and we all, we all were babies once, so we dare not despise babies because we're despising ourselves if we do that. And a little baby, a you know, beautiful little human being. Not good for much, but extremely valuable. You know, immeasurably worthwhile. Such a, just an adorable, beautiful, wonderful. You know, I can't re- never forget the sense of awe I had at being present at the birth of my children. and Just seeing this miracle of human life, just you know, unbelievable. So what is life? Life is a little human being human. And every day learning something else, learning something else until at the end of the life. Still a human being, still learning. And the Christian life is just like that. Just like that. We become the children of God and then we just, every day we are simply becoming what we are. No less or no more a child of God, but a more mature one, a more effective one, a more capable one as time goes on. But we're being what we are, not, not what we aren't. So for a lot of people, Christian life is like they're over here and then over here is the ideal of what they want to be and the whole of their life is sort of becoming what they're not. <laughs> so they say, well, I'm not yet a child of God. I'm not yet be victorious. I'm not yet. But the Christian life really is saying, I have everything I need. I'm fully, wonderfully a child of God. Therefore, my Christian life is simply just being who I am and living in the light and in the power of that. Now, of course... If a little baby is going to grow up, it has to eat, it has to drink, has to exercise, all sorts of things a child has to do to survive. And we have to do things. We have to read the Word. We've got to pray. Things we have to do in order to survive. But none of those things make us any more a child of God. Just as food makes you no more a human being. In fact, too much food, you become much more of a human being. <laughs> but you're still a human being. And so... You know, it's important to pray, it's vital, it's essential to pray, essential to read the word, essential to fellowship with God's people. All these things are so essential, but they don't make us any more a child of God than we ever were. We are children of God because we put our faith in Jesus who died for us. And so really revival then is just being who we are, living out the Christian life. And seriously, the problem with so much of what's happening in the world today is because Christians haven't done that. We have not lived in revival. We have prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we've forgotten we ever prayed it. And that's, that's the sad truth. And so when the world looks at Christian people today, it, it doesn't really hate us, it just doesn't care. Because they don't see anything worth getting excited about, but they do see they don't like or pretend not to like. And we just have not been living in revival and that has been a serious issue. So, what now? Okay. A couple of uh, oranges, beautiful autumn trees there. Revival is God's people being what we ought to be. It is reliving the New Testament in our day. That's it. Very simple definition. And that's what we have taught in the CRC all these years. Revival is God's people being what we ought to be. It is reliving the New Testament in our day. And I must say, I get alarmed or concerned sometimes when I visit the CRC church and I find them singing a song that says exactly the opposite to this. I think, what's happened to our understanding, what's happened to our heritage? Our heritage. In fact, um, I was in a CRC conference and I, we, one of the songs we were singing, I looked at one line and I thought what's that line mean? I don't understand that. And as I looked at it, I, I, I was just puzzled why we were singing it. So I went to the song leader afterwards so I said, can I see the words of this song? And we got them out looked at them. I said, what's this line mean? He said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, it looks to me like it's actually the line either before or after it talked about God sending the Holy Spirit to us. But this line looked like it was saying that we were sending the Holy Spirit to God. And I thought, why on earth are we singing that? And as I looked at the line, I realised probably it was a typo. There had been a letter missed off one of the words. It was It was our instead of your, your instead of our, something like that. Why? Just a letter missing is probably all it was. And so that was easily fixed. But the problem was that they had been, this church where we heard this, it wasn't here. It was another conference. The church where we held it, uh, they had been singing that song for weeks and no one had noticed. Uh, we'd sung it several sessions of this conference. I was the first person to talk to anybody about it. And I thought, what are we doing here singing a song which is simply wrong and nobody notices? <laughs> nobody notices. We need to guard, jealously guard the truths that have been entrusted to us. We need to be careful what we sing, what we say. Uh, the kind of authors we, we read and accept without question, kind of TV speakers we, we, we hear and accept without question because we need sharp minds to understand, soft hearts to believe that we might be true to the Word of God and true to the Scriptures and not in any way to be uh, compromising the great foundational or truth in which this movement has been built. Does that make sense? Is that all right? Yeah? Okay. All right, I think that's all I've got. Oh, no, one more thing. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to pray for revival. That's an interesting statement, but it's true. Many people say we've got to pray for revival. What we do pray for is what I've said already. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And when we answer that prayer, then that is revival. That's revival. Would you stand with me as we pray? bless you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. As we're standing before the Lord, God, just ask us to reflect back on some of the things I've said tonight. Um, think about the, think about confession of sin, for example. Um, yeah, has God been God's Spirit been convicting you tonight? Are there things in your life that He needs to deal with? Have you been uh, relying on self-effort rather than on the grace of God in Christ? And what about as a church? Have we been really just living the kind of life God intended us to live? A lot of challenges here. And I want us to rise up in faith tonight, not to be, feel condemned or defeated, but to rise up in faith and say, Lord, we're going to claim this. We're going to do this thing in Jesus' name. We're going to live a life of revival. We're going to be a church in revival. And we're going to believe that our lives will be free from sin, that they will demonstrate the power of the gospel Oh, that we will live in such a way that we will, we will show the world that Jesus is alive and his spirit is real and the gospel is true and the kingdom of God is powerful and that this is the way and this is the truth and this is the life that we must follow. Can we agree on that? We're going to claim that by faith and believe, yes, tonight we're going to do that. It's the sort of people we're going to be. Lord, we pray tonight for every one of us here, God, that you'll help us to rise up in faith. Lord, help us to be strong in faith, giving glory to you. Oh, God, we just pray tonight that we will not in any way um, compromise or fall short. But, Father, you'll help us as we read and study and think and pray, read the scriptures and meet together. God, that you'll lead us in such a way that we are really walking in your paths and doing the things that you want us to do. Father, we pray that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you take your seats, please?